Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, as always, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today we have a special guest, um, Pastor Charlie Dates from Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Pastor Dates. Thank you for having me. Awesome. I'm excited about this interview. Um, I read your, your, your blog recently that kind of went viral a little bit. I saw a Christian Today. Um, was it Christian Today or Charisma published it? Christian. Christianity Today Leadership Journal, one of those. Um, and so I'm excited to talk to you about that. Um, introduce, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. My name is Charlie Dates. I am 34. I'm the senior pastor of the uh, historic Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. I almost hate to call it historic, but they made me say that when I first got here about four <laughs> and a half years ago. Progressive this year is 96, and it has a remarkable history. Um, in Chicago and really in our nation. A lot of people may recognize the name of the Progressive National Baptist Convention. Um, legend has it that that convention was named after this church. Uh, the planting pastor, or the guy who's given the credit basically for uh, planting this church, T.E. Brown, um, was one of the stalwart figures uh, during the breakup of the National Baptist Convention after J.H. Jackson and his um uh, and his group would not adopt a civil rights platform with uh, Dr. King, Gardner Taylor, and a few other uh, very reputable pastors. And so uh, I have the unique privilege of serving this church and came in as its youngest pastor, which history will tell us one day if that was a good thing or not so good thing. Uh, <laughs> but it has been a game changer for for me and uh, part of the unfolding uh, of God's marvelous grace in my life. I am married to Kirsty Elizabeth Dates. Uh, we have two children, Charlie and Claire, who live here in Chicago, of course, with us. And uh, we've been married for a little more than nine years. Amen. College sweethearts. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, we still sweethearts. That's, that's <laughs> I am uh, finishing in the in the stages of uh, I've over. I'm on top of the hill of writing a dissertation. So I'm after this chapter. It's downhill, Lord willing, to the finish line from here. And um, and I've been preaching for 17 years. So there you have it. Amen. What a story. Um, congratulations on um, becoming the pastor at Progressive and also nine years of marriage. Um, that's amazing. That's a testimony in itself. God praise. <laughs> so, um, Pastor Days, what, what inspired you to write? the blog about the black church? You know, I must say it laid like a germ in my soul for years. Uh, a few weeks ago, a young man came to my office uh, who I have known for some years. He, had, in fact, uh, was part of a youth group team ministry, a very vibrant, popular church in Chicago. And um, he had gone to a small white Bible college and had since moved on to another church, very theologically astute guy now. And he, he wanted to get together and to talk about some of my research. But as we got into the conversation a bit more, it became real clear to me what was going on with him. He had um, he had had an experience, uh, multiple experiences at his uh, largely white evangelical Bible college that led him to embrace a 
an awkward disdain for the black church. The reason I say it's awkward is, is because Lisa, he, you know, he loved the black church. He grew up in it, got saved in it, mm-hmm. but he found himself just questioning everything about it and uh, being overly critical of its proclamation of the gospel, of its uh, witness and ministry in the community, of its ability to disciple and and turn a cold shoulder to it. Mm-hmm. But again, it's it's awkward because he de- he doesn't feel totally at home doing that. And so uh, wrestling with that, um, it, it just led into a conversation which prompted me to tweet a line that I've been thinking for some time. And that, that is, don't let your newfound training turn you away from the black church. Mm-hmm. And little did I know it would resonate so, so deeply um, with so many people. And one guy just asked me to say more. And so um, I read an article one night by um, or a response to an article by a pastor here in Illinois named Kenneth. His name is Kate Edward Copeland. He's not the Kenneth Copeland prosperity guy down in the (laughs) southern part of America. He's a black guy who pastors the New Zion Baptist Church in Rockford. And he was using this phrase called gospel gentrification. And he was asking for some responses on it. And so uh, one night I'm, I'm responding to this article and then I say, forget it. Let me just go ahead and write this this blog post. Get this thing out of me uh, that, that's been on my mind for some time. And um, and that's what it turned into. It turned into what went on our website and then what uh, leadership journal Christianity Today picked up a few days later. Um, I love the article when I read it because it. It was something that I had been saying um, a lot um, because I know a lot of my friends <clears throat> are reformed. And it seems to be something that's an, a movement with the the neo-reformed um, African-Americans, um, this elitist mentality to throw everything the black church is saying out the water um, as if um, they're not credible because they don't use the terminology that we've discovered or stumbled upon in our books, um, but with it, but in fact, they're using, they're acting it out. They just might not use the word. To use. Yeah. And so, um, I was, I was happy to, to read your article. Um, and it was really encouraging to me cause it kind of spoke to what we do at the Jew three project. Yeah. Um, if if I may, and I want to say up front, I'm not picking any fights. Anybody who hears this, I, I'm not one of them guys that we got to dog each other, blogging back and forth, because unfortunately, that's what these things can turn out to be. Mm-hmm. But I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I think there is um, a a kind of uh, and this is a, a, a term I've, I picked up, a, a sort of theological imperialism from some of our uh, black neo reformed friends, which, by the way, uh, in terms of historical theology, the black church has been solidly biblical. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would chart it as reformed, however. Like, we don't see our roots in Jonathan Edwards or Lemuel Haynes or, or some of those, but it's at least not from what I read. I, I, but I do think that, that we have been a largely, uh, faithfully biblical community. And that is, we don't impose a theological system on our reading of scripture so much as we allow the reading of scripture to speak its own theology, which, which doesn't always, you know, when you study theology, it doesn't always fit into some of these neat categories that we've made. For instance, um, this past week, I preached Romans, we're working our way through Romans, and I was at Romans, uh, 
8, uh, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined and uh, to be conformed to the image of his uh, firstborn, his only son, that is Jesus Christ, to be the firstborn of many brethren. And those whom we uh, predestined, he also called. He, those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also um, glorified. And therein is a marvelous description of the sequence of our salvation. It, it very, very much underscores the, the doctrine of election, of election uh, that God has called us. And, and I got a, an email from a guy who's kind of dating our church. He's been coming, he and his wife saying, well, you know, um, I heard you say the other day that you're not a double predestinationist. That is, I don't believe that God predestines people to go to heaven and then he predestines people to go to hell. And, and I argued that from Paul's writing to Timothy, but also in the coming months, we'll hit Romans 10, 13, where it says, whosoever will let them come. Mm-hmm. And, and there you find this wonderful tension in scripture. And, and what, what happens, I think, in the black church is we pre, we preach the emphasis of whatever passage we're at, mm-hmm. such that we don't make Romans 8, 29 and 30 fit First uh, Timothy two, or I'm, or I'll have to pull up the exact verse, or Romans ten, thirteen. They go together. On this side of heaven, you know, you'll read, "Whosoever will, let him come." And on the other side of heaven, you'll see even more so that it was him drawing you to make that decision. Whosoever will, let him come. So, in our preaching tradition and in our historical theological tradition, I find that black preachers have been faithful at preaching the emphasis of scripture as they come up. It is more of a, of a different tradition, I think, that imposes a theological grid on, on every passage of scripture. So we got to read the Bible like we're Calvinist mm-hmm. or we gotta read the Bible like we're Arminian when we could just read the Bible in whatever lane it's speaking in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important uh, for people to note that, um, because of the way African black church is set up, um, there's not the same. I heard, um, and I don't want to get stones thrown at me. I'm going to quote T.D. Jakes, uh, in the elephant room. And he <laughs> said, um, he said something that I thought was so, so true. We didn't have the luxury to argue over these things mm. because of the struggle that black people were in. So we, we just came together, you know, AME Baptist, you know, because we're, we're fighting a common, we're in this common struggle, which is the 60 civil rights. So we didn't have time to kind of sit and let's debate uh, over theology in, in some of, in the formation of the black church. So that's why ours looks different. And um, so I just want to say, I don't agree with everything TDJ's preaches, but in that instance, but you, I but think you don't have right. to. Yeah. And, and this is part of what I think is is rich about our tradition, too, Lisa. And I would want to encourage your readers in this regard. I think the beauty of the black church, at least as, as I have experienced it, is we talk to people we don't agree with. Mm-hmm. We don't ostracize them. I don't know, like, what this um, eagerness to declare people as heretics. I don't know where that has come from. I. I think if you're going to win a brother, you got to talk to him mm-hmm. and coming out of the elephant room, quite frankly. And I, I've got some relationships, with some of those people um, who were <laughs> who led that that movement. Uh, some great conversations have come up with Bishop Jakes 
on the the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And and those conversations may not have taken place or even led to some of some of the transformations I think he's experiencing if said persons were not bold enough and gracious enough to have the conversations. If you and I only are conversant with people we agree with, then we're in trouble. And, and you don't have to relinquish orthodoxy. You don't have to deny the essential, the, the cardinals of our faith to speak to people who may not be as theologically sophisticated as as you might be. As you as you will know, I mean, having grown up in black church, there, there are people who perhaps your dad would have had preached for him that he didn't agree with everything that they did or stood for. But that didn't stop him from hosting them or even from saying to them, man, you crazy <laughs> you know, <laughs> for embracing that. But but I fear that uh, there is this eagerness to declare people heretics and to ostracize them and, and not have fellowship with them. But I don't I don't think that's biblical. I think we can win a lot of people by being winsome and and having conversations. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's I always say this phrase. We have to have a humble hermeneutic. Huh. And I like that. And when you have a humble hermeneutic, you go into the conversation um, with the mindset. I could be wrong. So that puts the other person's ideas equal with yours. Not saying they're right, but it just takes your it brings your mindset to a different place because I'm I'm not right on everything and they're not right on everything. So if I come to the conversation and I've already humbled myself while I'm not thinking my ideas and my interpretation of scripture is superior to yours, then I'm able to engage you. But as the Bible said, um, knowledge puffs up. And if we don't have um, if we haven't been before God in prayer, it seems like we're, we're pendulum people. So people who study a lot sometimes don't pray a lot. So they haven't had time to process their information in prayer in order to have that humble hermeneutic. Um, And then sometimes people who pray a lot don't study a lot. So we kind (laughs) of need each other. And when we come together, we, the truth is, it's in that, in that kind of um, that Proverbs idea of us sharpening one another, but that comes with prayer and humility and realizing I could be wrong about this. And just because my favorite scholar has said this, they, they could be wrong. I could quote, um, um, Luther on on um, on something, and then go around and say, "Oh, he's wrong on how he dealt with the Jews." Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. understanding that just because your favorite scholar said something doesn't make it right because they've been wrong. They're they're not God. They don't no, have. Um, they're not. Their word is not infallible. So, absolutely. Um, what? What in in I think as far as the bl- people in the in the white evangelicalism or in the neo reform movement, what do you want them to understand about the black church? Because I think many people think you know, um, because the black church is so different um, as far as the formation and like are the black. Ch- I'm trying to say word this right. Um, we our sermons are the books 
we we haven't there's not a lot of there's not a lot written from some preachers that we would put on par with the D.A. Carson. Yeah, well, um, let, let me say something to that real fast before I answer your question. I um, And it's not that I take issue with it. It's, it's just that I think the sociocultural makeup of race in America, I should say race in America, has dictated those terms. Mm-hmm. Um, black people, black scholars uh, have never been uh, without number. It, but even the access to publishing houses and to uh, platforms to produce literature have been uh, limited to us. And, and so it's the, the pulpit has been our platform. It has been our publishing house in large part because those other doors had not been open. And then, quite frankly, for some of our dear white evangelical brothers and sisters who have right theology, um, they in terms of history, have just recently opened the door to their academies, their boardrooms, their faculty to African-American people to contribute in the scholarly way, whereas some of our liberal institutions had got over that a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And and so where they made room there, there was a, a more of a massive interest. And it, it grieves me in thinking of uh, the progress we've made in America that those with uh, the not so finer points, in my opinion, or biblical points of theology have gotten the race issues right. And and those with orthodoxy and right thinking about God have gotten those issues of race and society wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, I don't think a lot of that, Lisa, has changed. This is this is what I fear for some of our uh, more radical neo-reform brothers and sisters is, you know, people are fine with you so long as you agree with them theologically. But when you start talking about issues of mass incarceration, immigration, health care, things that you see from a different lens that they do, um, they aren't so quick to open up their platforms to you. But if you're talking about the doctrines of grace and, you know, you want to uh, hold on to um those issues that we stand for together on the scripture, then man, they'll have you all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think it is the mishandling of issues of race and society that has even crippled the black publishing house, so to speak, in, in Christendom and African-American Christendom here in America. And it pushes people um, to the other side um, because um I, I wrote an article for Jude 3 after Charleston um, about our the black church's response. And I quoted Rufus Burroughs um, work on James Cone. And he was talking about the reason black liberation came became so popular um, during the um, time of the civil rights movement was because people were going to church and not hearing about their struggles in the pulpit. Absolutely. And so when we don't address those issues, we push people in the opposite direction, which is what you're speaking of. And it causes a problem. So when you're trying to tell them, oh, we have right theology, but your orthopraxy doesn't match. um, You're going to push people to where they see the right practice and they're going to throw away your right doctrine, which, in fact, we need both. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I, I know that you you talked about the the 
absence of Bishop College yeah. and in um, the black church environment now. How how um, how important do you think that was to the black church? I think we should have a moment of silence for Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there ought to be a national solemn assembly, man. Bishop, you know, was more than 100 years old when it closed. And it, quite frankly, was the largest manufacturing institution of strong black clergy in America. I mean, bigger than Morehouse. You hear some of the Bishop alum talk about it, and this is documented. The philosophy of religion department at Bishop ranked at the top in the nation in its heyday. It's it's an HBCU. So, I mean, you know, we're talking ahead of the big leaguers, Ivy leaguers, all that kind of thing. And and yet one of the little known things about Bishop is that his school of education was even bigger. I mean, Bishop produced more black teachers and educators than it did pastors and preachers. Oh, wow. But let's take a snapshot of this. Let's go back, say, five years ago. The largest thriving black Baptist churches in our major cities were all pastored by Bishop grads from Houston to Dallas to Chicago to Indianapolis, L.A., New York, Oklahoma City. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Bishop produced a class of black preachers in America that were second to none. And, you know, you had in them a solid orthodoxy but also exposure to non-Orthodox scholarship. And and there's no fear in that in in the African-American scheme of education. We historically read everybody. That doesn't necessarily mean we agree with everybody, but we read everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And from that, they built some great churches that uh, the Lord built great churches through them uh, that disciple people well, educated folk strongly spoke truth to power, led demonstrations against injustices and still do. But that Bishop group now, uh, the last class, which finished in 88, you know, they're reaching middle age at this point. And I was sharing just yesterday. I I don't think he would mind me telling you this. I I had lunch with a vice president for academic affairs at Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, guy by the name of Matthew Hall, really bright, incredible guy. I'm so encouraged uh, after meeting with him. But I was sharing with him that you wouldn't know that Jeffrey Johnson, Freddie Haynes, Ralph West, uh, E.K. Bailey, James Meeks, Stephen Thurston, uh, Lawrence Akers, Major Jemison, uh, Armin Brown, uh, the, the list just goes on and oh, Freddie Clark in, in St. Louis. It goes on and on and on. All these guys came from the same school in like the same, within the same span of 15 to 20 years. Oh, wow. Amazing when you think about how they shape black church in America. We miss that because now, Lisa, you, you almost got to pick between do I go to school where, where I'll get um, accurate biblical education, solid theological reflection to the exclusion of um, proper care for people in the pew leading my neighborhood, being socially active. 
or do I go to the place where I'm going to get all of that to be socially active, to have a liberation perspective on theology, which, by the way, I, I well, I won't get into that. But but I understand <laughs> it. I totally understand it. And I even understand the name behind it. Um, but to the exclusion of um, the right tenets of our faith. And, and I think part of what we're seeing now in the early phases is we're seeing a class of black pastors who are the most educated that black America has ever seen, the most well-paid that black America has ever seen, um, very gifted preachers, but are socially anemic from the pulpit. I mean, won't get involved or speak to issues of social justice at all. So that now the Black Lives Matter movement is the first that we know, that I know of, first issue of systemic injustice on a national level that has no central voice from the black pulpit in America. Mm -hmm. You think about it, every other national movement in America that has spoke to the injustices of black people, the black pulpit has been at the forefront. This is one that we cannot claim as such. And I think it's largely my generation. Like I don't blame those 55 and older or 50 and older. I I think it's the guys in our thirties and in our forties who have not assumed a mantle that rightfully belongs to us. And and some of that, I think, is tied to the absence of a bishop college, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think in our day, um, on par with bishop would probably be Morehouse. So I was about to say, I hope you didn't say that because <laughs> I don't want to offend my Morehouse brothers at all. <laughs> um, and I got several that I, I know and love. Um but I would agree. I mean, the closest thing you get to, but Morehouse doesn't compare to the fraternity that Bishop built mm-hmm. and to the camaraderie and to the emphasis on preaching. I mean, John Mangrum, who was the dean of the philosophy of religion department, made sure that those guys came out of there. I mean, on target and on point. I- I've been to Morehouse several times. I met Dean Carter several times. Um, it just is a different world at Morehouse. I was talking to another pastor, a graduate of Morehouse last night, and I found out, you know, Morehouse, maybe it was this year, inducted, and I don't want to offend your readers or listeners, but but this is true, inducted into their MLKJ Hall of Preachers, uh, a gay pastor, you know, whose uh, husband, if that's what you want to call him, is like the first gentleman. Man, that would have never flew a bishop. That would have never flew a bishop. And and that's outrageous. Mm-hmm. That Morehouse would would go along with that and and some of the other more outrageous things that Morehouse has done. And so um, it just doesn't compare. So I think in that regard, Morehouse may have the history. It may have the composite of African-American men, but it doesn't have the integrity. And and forgive me for saying that, you Morehouse brothers of mine. It just it doesn't have the integrity that Bishop College had. But I think the reason um, even thinking through that is. Is partly on white. I would fall in this in a, a little bit white evangelicalism from excluding African Americans because it opens up um, colleges to um, side with the oppressed in every area and kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater with evangelicalism. So there needs to be, um, and I think this is what you're trying to do, uh, bring bridge a gap because we need. Some of we need some of what the white evangelical brothers and sisters are saying in 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 black 
in our HBCUs, but because they haven't had the right attitude towards African-Americans, it pushes African-Americans to another extreme. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think we're reaping seeds that have been sown for a long time. I didn't know to quote Malcolm X, the chickens are coming home to roost, man. I mean, this is the, the, the racial breakup of Christendom in America is producing the schism that we feel now. And God never intended us to have to go to, you know, um, to, to use the language even that we're having to use. This is just really awkward in the kingdom of God and the body of Christ. But we do need each other because we are each other. I mean, we are the body of Christ and and, and we need it across the board. I'll, I'll stop there. So what would you I, I think this has been a very rich conversation and I'm excited for people to hear it. Um, what do you want? What would you say first to our uh, African-American brothers and sisters who are in in the white evangelical world? And then what would you say to our black brothers and sisters who despise the evangelical world? So I would say and I didn't ask your first question well either. I realized that. But I, I would say to our black brothers and sisters who are in the evangelical world, uh, finish your training, get, get what you have to get. But at the same time, uh, stay grounded in a black church somewhere. I think part of the benefit of my education, and it sounds like from your story, that there are, there are these deep roots that uh, are in uh, that are in our experience that we cannot forsake. We we have um, a a rich. They're doing work down by my office. That was the noise. They're getting. We're we're putting up these wonderful new walls for our children in the lower level that tell the Bible stories. So uh, I didn't give them forewarning that we'd be recording. <laughs> no problem. But, but I would say, I would say stay in, stay in a black church and, and let that help you um, or keep you from hitting some ivory tower where, where you will be uh, ineffective in reaching the church once you get out, the, the black church once you get out. And and don't reach for the excuse, oh my gosh, I can't find one. There, there are no pastors, upstanding pastors in my neighborhood. I can't tell you, Lisa, how many times I hear that. And there are no upstanding pastors in my city. Look, nobody's perfect. And, and if you go looking for it in other communities, you will find out how imperfect other communities are as well. Mm -hmm. So just put up with what you have to put up with. Learn what to do and what not to do how to embrace what's good from a leader and how to not repeat what's not good from another leader. Um, so I would say that to them. I, and, and then I would encourage them to read more broadly than what their curriculum gives them. You know, you need to read some Kierkegaard and Slymarker. You need to read uh, Rauschenbusch. You, you need to read, um, I don't even know if people would consider Karl Barth, um, Liberal, you, you need to read as, as much as you can or as broadly as you can, not so much to embrace the ideas um, that others have, but just broad readership gives you a quality education. If all you get in your predominantly white evangelical education are the scholars that they approve of, which are largely they themselves, then that's going to be your bent. You can't expect to graduate with a, a horizon view of the of the church or even to expand your mind in that regard. And conversely, I would say to our black brothers and sisters who go to some 
non-evangelical schools. And by evangelical, by the way, I don't mean fundamentalist, vote Republican, you know, <laughs> George Bush and Carson. That's not what I'm talking about, because many of us would not fit that that realm. I just mean Bible believing, gospel preaching people. Uh, so to our black brothers and sisters who go to some non-evangelical schools, I would say to them, read some evangelical scholars. And I would highly recommend Don Carson, um, not just because I, I know him and love him, but because he's one of the just the best New Testament scholars the 20th century and, and now 21st century has come to know. I'd, I'd encourage you to read some uh, Kevin Van Hooser in the area of uh, systematic theology. Uh, and and get some resources in your system that you would not be encouraged to read in your non-evangelical context and and broaden your ability to engage in meaningful conversation with people who don't agree with you. Don't assume because the school you go to embraces and has historically embraced black people that they get everything right with the Bible. I'll be honest, and I'm take I'm not trying to take a shot here, but I realize this is gonna be like shots fired, what I'm about to say. Okay? So I'm I'm giving you forewarning. I I mean it with a clean heart as far as I know. Um <laughs> we might be surprised at the number of, of black students who come out of some of our more uh liberal schools, East Coast schools, if you will, top East Coast, who are not very skilled at exegeting the the text. They they do great at exegeting culture, at being able to speak relevantly and to read systems well. But when it comes time to reading that Bible and, and breaking up, breaking open, you know, that Hebrew and that Greek and understanding how the stuff goes together and explaining the ideas, it in you need some you need to be sure that you get the very best training you can at exegeting a text when you go to a school where that's not its emphasis. And it's hard to have an emphasis on exegeting a text if you don't ascribe or submit to the authority of the text. You understand what I'm saying? So so, you know, don't expect that somebody's going to teach you how to handle and rightly divide it when they themselves don't fully believe in the scope of its redemptive story. So um, and and then I would encourage them to listen to some preaching outside of their tradition. Uh, Joseph Stoll. um, I can't even believe I'm about to say this. But well, actually, I can't. Steve Lawson would be great, of course. Uh, you know, be familiar with John MacArthur. Uh, know who um, Alistair Begg is. Get get to hear some of these voices outside of our context. But then, and they would know some of these voices. I would say, fall in love with Maurice Watson and Ralph West and Jeffrey Johnson, and and pull up some E.K. Bailey. Uh, if you would. And, and of course, H.B. Charles Jr. I mean, what, what better example for preaching, contemporary example for preaching do we have today? But in, in voices like uh, a Ralph West or Maurice Watson or, or an E.K. Bailey um, and, and then so many others, you get a person who is schooled across the traditions, but who have remained biblically faithful and who can shut it down. Uh, so, I mean, they 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 have the best of both worlds, if you will. Amen. I think that's that's so crucial. I um, when I was a student at Liberty, um, I used to spend my weekends in D.C. and I attended the Alfred Street Baptist Church with Pastor, the Reverend Dr. Howard John Wesley. Right. And it um, Chicago native. Huh? One of my favorite uh, preachers to listen to. Um, but I was just. It, when you think of you have these perceptions of different 
I come from a non-denominational, more Pentecostal background. Bless That's the I, church I, I grew right. up in. It wasn't oneness, but just non-denominational sure. uh, Pentecostal. And I went to Liberty, which is one of the most conservative uh, white uh, evangelical seminaries you could go to. At the same time, I'm attending uh, historically um, Black Baptist Church, right. National Baptist Convention. And at Alfred Street, this is, and I was telling someone this, um, the other day at Alfred Street, their Tuesday night Bible study is taught by a Yale, um, um, prof, a Yale graduate in Old Testament, uh, Old Testament scholar. Okay. Um, and then they have Bible classes that you can enroll in taught by seminarians. I mean, sem- seminary professors from Gordon Conwell from all different seminaries to hold classes on um, systematic theology, on biblical theology. And I was like, if you, if you, that's why you can't just go off of um, these kind of caricatures of the black church because the Absolutely. black church is so diverse. Absolutely. So there's some white evangelical churches that, that, that are rich in theology, you know, in quotes, and they don't even have classes like that available to their, to their congregation. And so, we'll, yeah. So you just have to, you have to explore, you have to um, kind of go and, sit in a church service more than Sunday, sit in a Bible study and see what these churches are teaching their congregants. Cause you may be surprised. Yeah. And I, I think to your, your point of exploring, I, I want to uh, say this cause I think this is what you mean. And this is certainly what I have in mind. We're not saying explore for the sake of just going outside of the bounds of orthodoxy, but a well-rounded, experience and education does expose you to uh, a whole lot. But but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the authority of scripture trumps everything. Mm-hmm. So you can read whatever you want to read and you can go sit in whatever class you want to go sit in class. But at the end of the day, the only arguments that stand are those that are made from scripture. This isn't an argument. You and I are not making an argument for people just to go try this and try that. No, we're, we're saying that we're solidly biblical people who submit to the authority of the scripture, even when we do not fully comprehend the the mind of God or what he articulates in scripture, we still submit to it. Amen. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm glad you added that part so it wouldn't be taken out of context. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask you this one question before we go, because I think this is a, um, a, a big thing that I'm seeing on Twitter um, with, um, historically black churches and politics and then white evangelicalism is we're um uh, this is a bit controversial i should have prepared you for this question um, <laughs> but um as far as gay marriage um i hear a lot of black pastors that were trained in um more liberal institutions saying that it's not an issue we should worry about um we can be against it in our churches this whole policy i heard i saw you tweet about it um you know the po- you know, separation of church and state. Um, some pastors even um, siding um, with the president on gay marriage because it's a civil rights issue and saying we should support yeah. um, gay marriage. But in our churches, we're not going to um, we're not going to uh, we're not going to sanction it in church, but we'll side because it's the issue um, of church and state. And I think that's that's a sticky um, issue. I, I don't side with them on that. Um, I think that we should as we should hold to scripture in that regard. So I don't think it's a necessarily civil rights issue like the black and 
white issue. Um, but I think our listeners need to hear the other side from an African-American pastor on that. Am I making sense? Am I? Yeah, absolutely. You are. I just I, I'm trying to figure out which angle to come at this from. I, I, I think that there is no such thing as a private theology and a public policy. Quite frankly, I nobody gets a chance to uh, no pastor gets a chance to divorce those things. A president maybe, and that's even on on shaky grounds. Um, but here again is the the flowering or the outgrowth of a historically biblically conservative people matriculate matriculating at institutions. Um, that are rather liberal. I, and I hate to use the terms conservative and liberal because, you know, some of the stuff you, you learn in the classroom, it just ain't safe to practice in the congregation. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a generation of young pastors, younger pastors, those under 50, but maybe over 40, who are playing with those things now. And it, you know, to stand with the president who I love and have met several times and, uh, have some great stories there. Um, but, you know, seeking to stand with him in, in his office, take pictures with him and and to be relevant at the expense of scripture is not a good idea. So we don't despise gay people. Um, the black church is not homophobic either. And I realize that there are a lot of people, including some of the some of the people who go to our church who are homosexuals. They would disagree with me there. I don't know that, that we've been homophobic uh, so much as we've just been. We've been silent about some stuff we should not have been. So some of the outgrowth of the conversation regarding same sex marriage and and same sex um, ministry, even at at a church or or two here in Chicago, is promoted because the black church has been silent on issues of sexuality for too long. And that's true. We, We have. We do need to address it. But I don't think that our silence for generations even, or uh, a silent, uh, passive embrace of people who are who live a homosexual lifestyle to participate in certain aspects of ministry. I don't think those things ought to lead to an agreement with that lifestyle right now. Mm-hmm. Just because you grew up in a church where, you know, guys in the music ministry or in the media ministry or these other areas were obviously effeminate and the pastor did not uh, speak out about it, doesn't mean it's okay for you now as a senior pastor or budding pastor to stand up and to say it's the right thing to do in America. It has never been the right thing to do. It is an affront to the way that God has made humanity. And it is not the kind of thing that we should bear down upon and beat up on people because they live a homosexual lifestyle. We should just preach the truth and preach it across the board. I mean, of course, the church should not condone homosexuality, but it shouldn't condone lying either. It shouldn't condone adultery. It, sh- it shouldn't condone murder. And and so to go along with um, a sociological tradition and to make your theology fit your sociology is wrong. Mm-hmm. At our church this fall, we're doing this uh, series called the Faith and Public Life series, where we're challenging, especially millennials, to let your Bible, the word of God, that is, and biblical theology shape and inform your public engagement mm-hmm. and your sociology. What we're finding, I think, in a lot of black churches uh, who and a lot of black pastors, I should say, who, who line up in the different areas, they're letting their sociology shape their biblical identity. 
or or their theology. That's not going to benefit anybody in the long run because um, human authority is um, is not eternal mm-hmm. and and it is shifting. And so I, I'd say to you, Lisa, and to uh, to your listeners that history is going to prove that God is right, that this is not a good idea for America. Mm-hmm. It is not. It wasn't a good idea for the Romans. Wasn't a good idea for the Grecians. No great society. Richard Nixon was right when he said this. He wasn't right on a whole lot of stuff, but he was right when he said this. Um, you you cannot beat history in this regard. No great society has gone this way and has remained great. We we are fighting nature itself, and nature's going to win. Mm-hmm. So that that's where that that's what how I would encourage your uh, listeners to view view it from a biblical lens take god at his word just trust that god is right about it mm-hmm. and embrace people of every stripe but tell them the truth and speak the truth in love amen and i think it's a it's a bad i i it's a bad hermeneutic going back to properly exegeting the text to say oh we eat fish and shrimp um, i mean no we eat shrimp <laughs> and pork um and so this should be okay because also murder is in Leviticus and uh, lying, you know, so, you know, you're putting things on the same level that are not necessarily on the same level. And then people go with it because they haven't been properly trained. Yeah. How to interpret scripture. Yes. Um, You just hit on something that's absolutely critical and, and it would be worth another conversation at some point, but our system for interpretation, our systems for interpretation have to be investigated. Because the way that we understand the intent of the author who's writing and the outworking of that passage in that cultural milieu affects in great deal how we understand what God is up to. Mm-hmm. And there are things in the scripture that are supracultural and there are things that are tied to the manners and customs of that time. This issue of of homosexuality is not tied to antiquity or to an ancient cultural system. It's tied into the very fabric of creation. God made a man. He fashioned the rest of the animals. He let him see. When you look at the way Genesis is set up, he let him see all the other animals to name them almost a parade as if to say to him, none of these fit with you. And even if he doesn't get it, You see in the early parts of Genesis, after Adam names all the animals, then comes the time to make woman. So it's like Adam gets to see and and out of his own mouth when he wakes up, when woman is made, he says, now this is what I'm talking about. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Even in the even in the uh, the way the narrative, the way that the narrative is set up in Genesis is to point to man and woman go together. And they thereby rule creation as agents of God. And there is no other way to make that work. Mm-hmm. But but that is all informed by your system of interpretation. If you have one that, that I think is faulty or doesn't handle the text in the way that it was written or intended to communicate, then you can make up all kind of you can make the text say what you want to make it say. Exactly. And um, for our listeners who haven't been following us, we have a serious scandal, how to get away with sexuality where we had um, um, some scholars, uh, Preston Sprinkle, um, Josh McDowell, and um, Sam Alberry deal with the issue in three parts. So check out our earlier episodes. We get real in-depth with the issue of sexuality. So um, that might be a good um, 
resource for you. Um, Pastor Dave, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you want to leave with our listeners? I'll say this. Our church is praying through. We're going to announce it at uh, Cutting It Straight is, is the plan. And then at the Thriving Frequency Conference with Eric Mason at Temple University in Philadelphia in October. But we're praying through a new project um, that will hopefully attract more <clears throat> African-American students to the theological education of Chicagoland area, but will also give them uh, an opportunity to contextualize it here at Progressive and one in which we'll support them in a candidating process uh, toward an African-American church once they, they finish. We, we need more residency programs, quite frankly, that grow out of black churches that help students get solid biblical education and then supports them in their pursuit of, of, um, of the calling that God has given them. And, and so we hope that Progressive will be one of many. There are some, of course, that already exist, but they, they aren't necessarily partnered with the kind of schools that, that I'm encouraging uh, people to go to. Uh, so be out on the lookout for that. And maybe once that gets up and running, we can come back to Jude 3 and talk about it. Amen. That's awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. Also, check out our blog section. We have a lot of um, blogs out there and some new stuff we're working on. So stay tuned to that. Um, You can subscribe on iTunes by searching Jude3 Project. You can follow us on Twitter at Jude3 Project, on Instagram at Jude3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Jude3 Project. Um, Next week, we'll be talking to D.A. Horton. And as always, at the Jude3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.